ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Ridiculous. What a shot. Just when you think you have seen it all. Welcome to the ABC Tennis Podcast. My name is Catherine Murphy and I'm joined by the two Johns, John Millman and John Alexander. How are you both today? Well, I'll I'll go first. I'm fantastic. Uh, Another beautiful day here in Perth. Um, a little breezy. I'm getting used to this Perth wind. You don't want to be scheduling practice <laughs> sessions in the afternoon because the doctor comes in. But it's been uh, a really nice stay here so far in Perth. How are you, JA? And uh, yes, the new year is treating me well so far. John, I have to go back to you and your quokka selfie. I want to say congratulations for making it back off that helicopter ride, which I know you were really concerned about. But your quokka selfie was up there with one of the best I've seen. Now, I hope you don't mind me saying so. Far superior to Alex Demonor, who you could just tell he was trying to be too cute with the quokka, but you let the quokka shine. How happy were you at that one? Uh, I didn't match Rogers though, did I? It was very challenging. Um, we we're up against it. We got there at about 10.30 and apparently that's when they, they go to sleep. They're nocturnal animals. So it was a real struggle. It was a real challenge. But then we topped it off with some nice seafood on the beach. So it was a beautiful day at Rottnest Island. Zero regrets. The helicopter ride was fun. It was comfortable. I felt safe. And I'd do it again. <laughs> How many takes for that perfect quokka selfie? Be honest, John. Oh, so many. Because what you have to do, because they're, they're, they're going to sleep and quite rudely we're awakening them. So you're rude. You're on all fours and you're crawling and you have to get down and dirty. That's the actual key. You have to get down and dirty. Um, <laughs> I would have loved to have gotten a little bit closer, but next time um, I'm here at Rottnest, probably visiting as a tourist, I'll know uh, the technique to use. Love it. Okay, we have so much to talk about, I have to warn you. So let's get straight into it. Let's start with the big story of the week. Rafael Nadal is well and truly back. A 7-5-6-1 win over Dominic team. He says he played at a positive level. John, what did you make of his first performance? Well, it's always a, a tricky one when you're playing that first one to get the cobwebs out of the system. Nothing replicates matches like matches. You can play practice sets. You can do as much training as you'd like. But until you actually get in those match conditions and those nerves start kicking into gear, um, do you really know where you're at, both physically and where your game's at? Um, On paper, it looked like it was going to be quite a tough matchup against Dominic Team, who came through a couple of long three-setters to get through qualifying. Um, I give it a pass mark. I think whenever you get the win, especially in straight sets, He grew into the game. That second set was a lot better. I did think he's still kind of working out his depth. You know, I find when I play against Rafa, he's at his most dangerous where he's ripping his forehand and he's landing it quite deep in the court. I thought his depth was a touch short at times, but no doubt he'll be improving from that. And the Brisbane crowd, geez, didn't they look like they loved having him there? They did. They really did. Jay, I've loved his press conferences because as someone who works as a reporter, we're always a bit shocked when you ask a question and you actually get 
a well thought out answer. He's so honest. One of the funniest answers this week, I thought, was when he was asked about what Andy Murray said about him in practice. He was asked, Andy Murray says you're at a great level. What do you think? And he said, well, I mean, if you ask my colleagues how I feel, they won't come in here and say Rafa is playing like a disaster. That's obvious, no? I've really missed that, J.A. What have you thought of Rafa's week? Well, it's it's a curiosity how he finishes every statement with not sort of asking Love questions. It. Do you agree? Um, I, I thought he was he was really really good last night against Dominic. Uh, the only concern or, or question you might have is, has he lost a step? And when John says, you know, he's not quite got the same weight of shot, is that because he's not getting the ball quite as early as he was? Uh, at his absolute peak. That's that's the only question. Other than that, I thought he played flawlessly. He's, he, he's able to play matches after a long break because I think he takes his practice so seriously. If you're watching practice, it's like he's playing for his life every time he steps on the court. He doesn't waste any time. He's flat out. He only know, only got one gear. And uh, I think that puts him in good stead. He, he seems match tough already and ready to go. And I will jump in quickly here and say those conditions of a Brisbane night Normally, it's quite humid, quite heavy there. But also, that centre court was quite slow when I was hitting there only a week ago. So, I do think his ball, you know, he hits with such heavy topspin. And, and when you have livelier conditions, so when the court's got a little bit of heat on it, it's so much more receptive to getting that that sharp bounce that he can get. and So much more receptive to his spin. So, I do think that his ball will have a little more heaviness uh, when when drawing a, a, a day match in Brisbane as opposed to those night matches. You mentioned the humidity in Brisbane, John, because I think it was Grigor Dimitrov broke a string and then managed one of the shots of the year. I mean, we're very early into the year, but it was so impressive. He had multiple racket changes, not so much other players. Do you really have to plan for that from an equipment point of view? For me, uh, with the humidity, I've found that I actually have to go a little bit tighter. Now, I'm unsure why he was breaking all those strings. I know he plays, it looks like he, he plays with gut and half the racket. So there might have been that moisture um, factor because obviously gut doesn't handle the moisture so well. JA would be a little more uh, experienced in that because I think that's all they played with back then with, was the gut. It was too expensive for me early on in my career. So I had to get rid of that and I had to go to the polyester strings. But I do think that um, with the humidity, I've always found that I lose tension a lot quicker. So I'll normally jack it up a couple of pounds um, just so it tries to maintain that that tension throughout it. And if you have a, if you have a higher string tension, for me, it meant that I could hit through the ball a little bit more with a little bit more control. When it gets a little bit looser, it has a bit more of a trampoline effect. So you really get the feeling... Um, that you have plenty of power, easy power, but it's a little harder to control. So in humid conditions, I normally jack the string tension up a little bit. I'm going to ask you both about Dominic Team. I think it's really sad to go from that Grand Slam win, albeit in the absence of the big three, to injury, to just, to me as an outsider, not looking like he's ever got back to where he was. What's going on with Dominic Team? It's a really tough one to see because he was looked like he was that next person to kind of take the throne off Rafa, especially at Roland Garros, wasn't it? He 
made a couple of fight. He made a final there, and he was playing such good tennis on the clay. Um, and then that big wrist injury happened. Um, I played him in 2022, midway through in Belgrade on clay. And normally that's the type of matchup that you'd be going, well, it could be a quick day in the office for me and I might be on the losing end because Dominic team on clay held um, that aura about him. But coming back from injury was quite the opposite. I went on the court thinking, well, he's a little bit underdone. I've been watching him practice. His backhand looks good, but that forehand looks as if he's struggling a little bit with it still. Um, and it proved to be right. Look, I won and, and I, and I got through it, albeit in a, in a relatively tight match. But back in the day on clay, uh, that would have been a little bit lopsided. I, I still feel as if he, he's improving, but it hasn't been that rapid improve, uh, improvement that we've seen um, the level that he could play at before the injury. Um, I feel as if on that forehand side, he's still really struggling with it. The backhand looks like the old Dominic team, but that forehand, I don't think the heaviness, the, the weight of shot, um, is there and I feel like it's a little more erratic so it must be incredibly frustrating for Dominic I know he changed his coaching uh, team last year uh, he went from Nicholas Masu he had a, a fair bit of success with and and he so he's searching he's searching for answers um, but it's not quite there yet is it no, and I remember watching him practice in the good old days and it felt dangerous to be on the side of the court of his forehand because you could get hit into the middle of next week. It was just so, so impressive. Let's move on to Novak Djokovic, J.A. I know you've been watching him closely this week. He's been really dominant in his United Cup matches. He seems like he's loving it. Did drop that one set to Yuri Lehechka and then had a medical timeout where he had treatment on the wrist. What have you made of him this week? Well, he's uh, you know, working on all aspects of his game. He looks in great form. He looks in great shape. He is you know, generally the fittest player uh, in the draws. Um, the injury timeout, if, if there is a question mark over his greatness and his entire career is the way he has, uh, in many people's minds, has strategically used injury timeouts. And after the loss of the second set, to take an injury timeout, to have his wrist massage for uh, yeah, some five minutes, breaking the opponent's concentration, maybe having thoughts entering into his opponent's head that, gee, maybe he'll default, I'm all over for the night. And then he you know, picks himself up, wins the next five games, wins that third set. 6-1. So uh, I have to say at this point, I agree with many of uh, my friends who say if they don't see blood, they don't believe there's an injury. And I haven't seen any blood. So he's entering uh, the Australian Open as he did last year under the cloud of injury. Uh, maybe that's what he needs psychologically to, to do his best. But uh, I think the rules, you know, they've changed so much. The, the rules in tennis used to be um, play shall be continuous. Now there's about 30 pages de defining what you're allowed. Uh, for a long while, cramps were a loss of condition. Even heart attack was a loss of condition. A player was told at the New Zealand Open once he thought he was having a heart attack and he was told by the referee, no, that's a loss of condition. You'll have to play on or default. And uh, so times have changed a lot. Cramps are now you know, a treatable injury. Um, but I think when players so routinely are taking advantage of these rules and so obviously using them strategically to uh, have, a, have an advantage tactically, to have an advantage of the, owner, of the opponent, they need, these rules need to be looked at a little bit more. 
John, I'm really glad for you being still on the tour that heart attacks now aren't considered a loss of condition. That's probably a good thing for the well-being of players. I found it fascinating to hear Novak talk about his diet afterwards and admit that, yes, he had some chocolate dessert, but only vegan. We know that he is so, so particular about what he puts in his body. Tell us, John, how do you manage Christmas and the build-up to the Australian Open when you're preparing for a massive event and there's so much great food around? Oh, look, probably this year I've uh, I've gone hell for leather and I've been eating everything. Um, but look, Novak's always been one of those guys that has been so meticulous with what enters his body. Um, at a lot of the big tournaments, he travels with a private cook. So his meals, a lot of these meals are being prepared off-site. Um, he'll go home, say, in Wimbledon, normally has a house there. He'll be going back there and having his meals prepared there. He's always been extremely meticulous. And, and as a result, you've actually seen the food around the tournament change also. You know, prior to, to Novak and all his gluten-free and, and, and vegan uh, ideologies, it used to be pretty stock standard. There, there wasn't even a thing 10 years ago of gluten-free pasta. Now it seems like every second person is getting gluten-free pasta. So I do think people have tried to adapt and tried to change and, and looked over at Novak and said, well, let's just try to mimic him. Um, but um, for myself, look, I always ate pretty well, um, but I didn't miss out this Christmas. I can give you the well, I'm happy to hear that. John, do you eat the gluten-free pasta? I just want to check in on that before we move on. I'm not gluten intolerant, so I don't see the need. I go nonna style and I go <laughs> all out, the traditional. What about you, J.A.? Yeah, I've read about this stuff, but no, I haven't indulged. I didn't inhale. Let's talk about Andy Murray. Okay, I am fascinated by the way he goes about it on the court. He is constantly berating himself. So he is the opposite of the positive mindset movement. So I've taken the liberty of renaming some famous books to imagine if Andy Murray had written them. So I'm thinking the power of negative thinking, bad vibes, good life. John, what do you make of that? Like I look at him on the court telling himself how bad he's doing. It's the opposite of everything we're taught. But who am I to argue? I mean, it's worked for him. Yeah, he's done it for as long as I can remember. Um, definitely if you're in the play, player's box, you're in the firing line, it's Andy Murray at the, other, at the other end. At times for me, when I look at Andy, it, it looks like when he plays, if you'd just been watching him for the first time, you'd swear he's not enjoying it. But he's got metal hips. He's got, you know, a, a big family, a growing family at home. Yet he's said he wants to be out here. He loves traveling. He loves being with his team. He loves competing. So, look, in some weird way, he's enjoying <laughs> himself. Uh, I don't know if the coaching staff is when they're in the heat of the battle. Um, but I think um, he's finding little ways that that makes him tick, that, that brings out his performance. And obviously he thinks that that type of response is what works for him. Love it. I would buy those books. I really would. J.A., one thing that's been really positive this week, the return of Naomi Osaka. Now, I didn't realise how much I'd missed her until I saw 
those little mannerisms, right, when she's back on the court and you forget the players' mannerisms are ingrained in your brain, like that little bounce that she does before the serve, the little fist pumps, and she looks happy. How much have you enjoyed watching her this week? Well, it's extraordinary for, for such a young woman to have incredible insights. And one of the comments that I made that I thought was really endearing was that when she was at her best before her her break uh, and the birth of a child in July, she said that she didn't think she returned the love. And after her win in Brisbane, her first win in Brisbane, she was so uh, grateful and and gracious uh, in demonstrating how much she enjoyed being there, playing and receiving uh, the warmth that that she did. So it's, uh, I think she's got a you know, a great future. I mean. Uh, it, the women's game is open for challenge. You know, I don't think Swatik is holding on to the number one ranking with, you know, with, you know, with a real strong fist at the moment. So uh, it's going to be a very, very interesting year in women's tennis, and which then focuses more and more interest on the Australian Open to get off to that first Grand Slam win. Whoever makes that one gets off to a flying start. The interest is how Coco Goff goes after winning the US Open, whether she can run you know, two in a row, coming in with confidence. J.A., I was agreeing with you until I, I've been watching Eager live. And my goodness, I am super, super impressed. The way she moves is, when, when you're courtside, J.A., the way she moves is incredible. She hits a heavy ball. Um, I mean, she was running around and taking Didovich Bikina's second serve and returning it with a lot of menace. I was super impressed with Iga. I'm going to predict a bit of an explosion happening on the women's uh, tour in the form of Iga. I think that she um, is the one to beat. I'm really interested in these stories coming through. But Iga, for me... I've just changed my opinion. Watching her courtside, it has been um, a real joy this week. Are you saying, John, that Iga's bakery is going to produce more bagels than even baguettes this year? No, I think so. I think there'll be donuts, there'll be bagels, <laughs> there'll, there'll be all sorts of things because she is in ominous form. Love it. We have to talk about the United Cup. I have so many questions to ask you, John Millerman, about bench activity, what was going on behind the scenes. But, J.A., I'm going to start with you. What do you make of this new competition as a whole? Where do you see it in the calendar compared to Davis Cup? Can the two coexist? What are your thoughts on it? Well, I think what team competitions do is they open a new dimension. And uh, as Novak said after after his matches yesterday was that uh, I think the last group he thanked was the Serbian fans and there was a huge Serbian support. And that's the uh, dimension that it opens up because playing in Australia, if you've got two foreign players playing, there's not always a lot of involvement. But if they've got their flag next to their name, and they're playing for their country, I think Australians, because of the history in Fed Cup, Federation Cup and Davis Cup, uh, we really relate to team competitions, maybe because of all that football and, and basketball and uh, not to mention the Matildas who seem to you know, dominate the world here in Australia, the sports world. Um, so I think it's a, a great innovation and the players do seem to take on that. It can be a lonely sport sometimes, tennis, but when you're a part of a team, 
uh, and you're selected to represent your country. It's a joyful moment, but the moment after you realise, oh, there's a big responsibility because I'm playing on behalf of my teammates, I'm playing for my country. And uh, I think it adds a dimension to the game and it's a great innovation. I've loved watching it, John. I've loved seeing you on the bench. I've been furiously taking notes on what you've been up to. Now, early days in this tournament, you really tried to help Alex Demonor. He casually said his girlfriend from the UK, Katie Bolter, had some weaknesses. You were very quick to point out that your partner has no weaknesses, very smart, and he'd be sleeping on the pullout in your room. How comfortable was that pullout bed for Alex Demonor? Oh, look, they look after us at, at this hotel and the rooms are nice and big. <laughs> I was expecting a knock on the door and Alex with his, you know, his pillow and his blanket. <laughs> um, but I think Katie forgave him. Um, there was obviously a social media blackout in their room because that was the only uh, reason she would have uh, forgiven him is, is not seeing it. But no, look, it was, a, it's always a bit of fun. It was one of those little side stories, wasn't it? Um, Team Britain versus Australia, but you know, Alex versus Katie. And unfortunately the Brits came out on top. However, we won the war getting through that group. Exactly. It's all about the long game. I did feel for Alex. It felt like he wasn't just representing his country in that match against Great Britain. He was trying to prove his girlfriend chose the right country. But that's all the time we have to discuss that. I want to talk about you on the bench, John. At one point during that match against Cameron Norrie, you were demanding that iPad. You wanted to check a particular stat what was it you were seeing in Alex's performance? And is that what he remedied to blitz Taylor Fritz in the next tie? No, I can't take all the credit there, but the iPad, normally you have access to these stats and that's been a thing now for the last 12 to 18 months. Um, and it wasn't working much to the uh, in fury, in, in, much to the fury of, of our captain and also um, the playing group. But, Cameron Norrie was serving extremely well and Alex is normally a really good returner. Um, and it, he was just really struggling. He was struggling to read the Norrie serves. So, um, and when you're serving at 80%, and I think at that stage he'd won 20 from 20. So he was batting at 100% when he was making a first serve. So we're just trying to look for any little patterns, some little tendencies that Alex could maybe use to, to lean on in bigger points. Um, so I was running backwards and forwards and going to the Hawkeye desk, although they're calling it something else here. I got told that a few times. Um, trying to get this iPad to work, number one, but but also trying to get some printouts of some stats just to, to kind of use that tool to pick up those little one percenters to try to change the momentum of that match. J.A., would you have liked to have stats available to you back when you played? Do you think you would have utilised that? Well, yes, it would have been incredibly uh, advantageous. When when I first travelled, I travelled under the legendary Harry Hopman. Harry was one of the few coach managers who took copious notes on players' habits and could share them with you. And a, a big part of percentage tennis and coming to the net was knowing where your opponent wants to hit their, their passing shots or where they're going to volley when the ball you know, is low and the different players have different habits. So you, you sort of develop your own uh, library on the players, but nowhere near the sophistication that the IT provides 
for the players these days. I mean, it is a, a different world. Um, and uh, it's interesting because that statistic of Cameron Norrie's wins on first serves, I mean, it was just an extraordinary thing. And I'm watching thinking, come on, just stand back, make him focus on something different, move in, move back. And sometimes when you do that, you can change the range of their serves. But, uh, you know, it, it was interesting because he'd beaten uh, Cameron Norrie, I think, at the Canadian Open when he went through to the finals and has had some success against him in the past. But uh, Cameron struggled in the second half of last year, only won five matches after Wimbledon uh, for the rest of the year. But uh, he seems in good form, as he was this time last year. He was in incredible form against Taylor Fritz. What was going on, John? He was a man on a mission to the point that Taylor Fritz looked confused by his form. He didn't quite know what was happening to him. What do you put that down to? What was his mindset before he went out there? Yeah, it was a completely different mindset. Um, you could see it. You could see it from day to day how much uh, he'd changed mentally. He was a lot more calm um, when he was getting ready for the Taylor match. He looked like he was measured and in control of his emotions. And when he went out there, the first ball in that warm-up that I faced with him and then the first ball in the warm-up with Taylor um, he, he was really covering that ball. He was giving it a good hit. I thought he started off a little bit passive and a little bit tentative against Cameron Norrie. And as the match grew, he did get better. I thought he was actually probably the better player until the tie break in that third set against Cameron Norrie. But against Taylor, it was that very first shot. You could see his feet were working. Mentally, he was really jacked up and positive. He ripped out a couple of commands early. And I think Alex is playing his best when he's getting the crowd involved and he's using that energy he does such a good job of shrinking the court. When he's moving well, it feels as if you have the smallest target areas to hit it into. Um, and he really set the tone early on. I think it's really important, especially with these new balls. There's such a big difference between the new balls, which are, you know, are tight-knit. They fly through the air. They actually wobble through the air. They're really hard to control. And then at the end of the ball change, they're, they're actually quite big and heavy. But those new balls are really tough to control. And I think you're better off actually taking big cuts at it and really trying to cover it. When I say cover it, I mean hitting it with that spin. But you're better off taking big cuts at it than trying to push it around and guide it. And Alex did a really good job of that, finding his range early. And like you said, Taylor was a little bit shell-shocked by the end. I've seen players literally chase the balls they've won a point with and try and beat the ball kids almost to those balls John, would you go to that level of chasing down a ball you just want to point with? Or are you just like, I'll leave it with the ball, kids? No, I think that's a little bit of superstition at play. But if the ball has a bit more wear on it, I don't want it, I don't want it at all. I need the newest balls because I needed all the help I can get to, to win points on serves. J.A., what have you made of Australia in the United Cup and that bench John just said that Alex was so jacked up. I mean, so was Leighton. We've got all the commands. We've got you, John, also totally. It was like they could literally power a small country with the energy from the Australian bench. I feel like, John Alexander, when I look at the Australian team, that they're so much more bonded and tight-knit than other countries. Has it always been that way? Well, I, th I think it has because... Um so often uh, the saying in Australia was, we don't have a Wimbledon, but we have Davis Cup and we have Fed Cup. And that's where uh, our, our teams excelled. 
Um, you know, we had a golden era, uh, even right, right from the beginning of the, the previous century, but under Harry Hopman in the, the mid part of the, the 20th century and uh, then with uh, the way that uh, Mark Philippoussis and Pat Rafter and Leighton Hewitt especially represented our country, that was the continu uh, continuation of that uh, tradition of playing for your country. And uh, when you, you know, listen to Alex, I mean, he, he talks about that all the time. But I, as he said after the match with Taylor Fritz, was that was one of the, and he thought about it for a while, he said it was one of the four or five best matches I've ever played. And uh, it was yeah, deeply thought through and felt. And yeah, he's, I think he's comfortable against Taylor Fritz. He beat him at the Canadian Open last year and he had another win over him during the year. Taylor, if, if you'd find a fault with him, he's a little bit sort of rigid, less flexible than some players, you know, sort of a typical breed of player that comes out of California growing up playing on perfect surfaces. And when Alex mixes it up, as he as he does with various spins, and when he gets back the unexpected ball and forces the opponent to hit another one and do better, uh, he, he's a very, very difficult opponent. I think he's hitting peak form now. His job now is to just maintain that, not burn out before the beginning of the Australian Open, uh, which has happened. I think it was 2022. He, he won in Eastbourne the week before Wimbledon and wasn't fresh for Wimbledon. So I dare say... At 24 now, he's more experienced and he'll pace himself a little bit now going into the into the Open. Well, he is, J.A., um, not playing next week. So at the end of this United Cup, he'll head to Melbourne early um, where some of the players are going to go to Adelaide or Auckland, like Cameron Norrie. He was boarding a flight to Auckland just now. Um, Alex is taking that week off. So I think that he is learning. He, he needs that time to refresh mentally, physically to be hopefully in tip-top shape come the Australian Open. That is great to hear. What about Isla Tomjanovic, John? How is she feeling? Because she played really well against Jessica Pagula despite the loss. And, of course, Pagula had such an amazing year last year. Is she feeling confident in her body heading into the Open? Well, I think that I've, definitely the body's actually in pretty good shape. Um, and I think that that match against Jessica Pagula is what she needed. Um a match where you don't have as much pressure, right? When you go out and you're playing against one of these top players, you can kind of swing for the fences a little bit because you know that you have to bring a good level to, to have a chance of winning. And, and I think that that was the match she needed um, just to dust off the cobwebs to, to, you know, to get that rustiness out of her system. We are running out of time. I could talk to you two all day. I really could. I want a two-hour podcast, maybe next year. But I want to ask you, John, about some behind-the-scenes issues. We talked in last week's pod about discussions around a Premier Tour. I believe the talks will go on throughout the Australian Open as to the possibility of that being set up. I just wanted to check in with you on the PTPA. That's the Professional Tenor tennis players association which was set up five years ago by novak djokovic it seems to be gaining momentum you know it was a bit of a you know patchy start for them but it feels like they have growing power is that a fair statement john where do you see them now yeah they've professionalized five years ago at that u.s open um when there's the famous picture on one of the courts, I think it's a grandstand, maybe. Um, they, you know, that was in its infancy. Now it's professionalized. There's a bit of money behind it now. 
Um, they've got a team. They've built a team um, with former players, but not just former players. They've built a team, um, you know, with their legals, with their representative bodies built out. Um, so there is a bit of mo momentum behind it because there's money behind it now too. So look, it's growing. Um, I'm sure they'll have another meeting come the Australian Open with how they feel as if they can be, be better represented. And I think that it's here to stay. So I think it's really important that the, the there's a bit of cohesion amongst the tours and the and this playing group and this PTPA. Hopefully the player council is in discussions with the PTPA because uh, the player council also serves as a body to represent the players. And I think that there needs to be a bit of harmony here because what's best for tennis is is everyone rooting for the same cause. And that's to, to build this game, promote this game and to build a better product. Whether you look at you know, sports, uh, politics or world politics, it's a whole lot better to have a peace negotiation before a war and not have the war than have the war and then have the peace treaties made afterwards. So I would encourage... Uh, there's voices here, people who've got issues and they need to be heard. That's the first thing in, in settling conflict is to make sure they've been heard, they've been understood and that there's action taken. I think one of the issues that the players are interested in is, is growing the game at grassroots to get more kids playing tennis and then finding a pathway into competition tennis. It's also a great second career for a lot of the players to be involved in the development of those players. So uh, it's an opportunity to address issues that may not have been addressed in recent years that are so vitally important for the future of the game. John Millerman, one last question for you before we go. Top Australian tennis junior Charlie Camus has defected to France. He will represent them instead of Australia. Did Tennis Australia do enough to keep him? Yeah, look, this has been uh, in, in the books for some months now, four or five months. Charlie's been in and around that Davis Cup setup. I know Leighton has a very high opinion of him. He's been at the last two or three ties. Um, and and like I said, Leighton and Tony Roach have a, a big opinion of him. Now, he has got dual nationality. It's, his parents are French. He's spent a bit of time in France. So it's become a real boiling point when you go professional, who you decide to play for. And the French came in. I think their junior program is now, under-21 program is now run by Ivan Lubacic. And Lubacic has come in and, and he's obviously identified a bit of talent with Charlie. I think that they offered him a better deal. From my understanding, it's gone back to Tennis Australia and we might have been a little bit uh, late to the table. Um, that's what I'm hearing. And... Obviously, it's a blow uh, because, you know, talent doesn't grow on trees. It's a delicate situation, but talent doesn't grow on trees. And we've got to try to keep the talent uh, here in Australia when we can. John, when you say late to the table, is it because maybe they expected him to stay with Australia and maybe didn't expect him to defect? Yeah, I think so. I think potentially. I just think that we have to be really decisive. If we want to have someone, if we want to keep our talent, we have to be really decisive. And I don't know if we were decisive enough. Okay, well, no doubt we will talk about this more. I could chat to you two all day, but I've got to let you go. John Alexander, John Millman, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. And thank you.
Thank you both. Well, we'll be back in a week's time with another episode. And during the Australian Open, we will release a daily pod. Follow, like, subscribe, share, do all the things. Thanks for listening. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.